we now start living with the product of all this mathematics, the new machines that we create, which actually change their social relationships and really reframe the way we all think about the world. And so the question today is, well, how does the gospel get preached into this world to give us a bit of an insight into um, maybe how can we think about evangelism in this new scientific reality that we live in as well? Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. I'm very excited to have you either listening or watching us on YouTube. Um, I hope we're looking uh, nice for you if you are watching us on YouTube. Um, we are joined um, joined again, as usual, by Tim and Stu. How are you guys? Yeah, good. Thanks, Joel. Excellent. Go very well. Now, Excellent. Tim, I noticed that you're not wearing a Superman shirt today. No, no Superman shirt today, but I'm no. um, still feeling fine. Just fine, not Just super. Fine. That's good. That's okay. And Stu, do you uh, need to talk about being a migrating water bird anymore or are you, you're just a normal stew today <laughs> well i think that comment came last week because i was wearing a billabong shirt and i just thought of migrating <laughs> water you are, birds that you live wearing in billabongs a bill- and i actually happen to be wearing a billabong <laughs> shirt again today it's a different one but yeah i think i'm still vibing excellent that, that idea of last week well yeah. welcome mr bird to the to the, to the <laughs> podcast thank you very much uh last last episode we spoke about well, we looked into church history um, and uh, how that has influenced uh, how we evangelize today. And we kind of got up to the Reformation. Uh, and now with this episode, we're going to continue to look at church history. And we're going to look at how the age of reason uh, led to evangelicalism and how it actually helps us evangelize today. But to start that, you've got a, an interesting quote from uh, a, a very popular man or very well-known man by the name of Benjamin Franklin. And you mm. have a, a book there, which is, is quoted in Stu. So why don't we make that the cultural artifact for this particular episode? Yeah, there's a, a, a pretty popular church history book called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Bruce Shelley. I can commend that to you. Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. I'm reading from the second edition, but apparently it's up to the fourth edition now. Mm. Uh, but it's a really good book, actually, to just get a bit of an idea of church history, particularly if you're new to church history, and to see what sort of impact church history has on us today. It's good to know where some of the um, the practices and the thoughts we have today come from. And so, as you said, Joel, uh, we're looking at revivals in the age of uh, reason and so uh, just to give us a bit of context of that I thought the cultural artifact could be from this era which uh, this era is around the era of the uh, American Revolution Mm. in uh, the 1700s and there's a man by, by the name of Benjamin Franklin who is one of the founding fathers of the American uh, state uh, and he uh, was actually really interestingly reflective of his age. He was a man of his age. So while he was really interested in some of the revivalist preachers that we're going to be talking about today, like George Whitfield, for example, uh, he was a promoter of him. He was also a man of reason. So here we see this really interesting example of something of the spirit of America uh, in in Franklin's time, which is the age of reason, which we could probably put it around 1648 to around 1789. So it's in the 17th and 18th centuries and it's interesting to look at the interface between reason and faith because in the age of the reformation which preceded this era there was this um war of ideas around uh with catholicism and protestantism that was started by luther and in the 1500s and basically there was this uh, war of ideas that was about whether 
where do you get your authority? Do you get your authority from the Bible and the Pope and the Church, as the the Catholics were saying, the Roman Catholics were saying, or is the Word of God our authority, which Luther was purporting to present? Well, that was the big argument in the age of the Reformation, but now in the age of reason, which comes after that, the new argument is: uh, is is there any spiritual authority, whether it be the Pope or the Bible? Or should human uh, science actually be our authority? And so Benjamin Franklin was a great example of a man who was, I suppose, um, embodying that uh, debate, I suppose. And I've got a quote here from uh, from the uh, church history book here. And this is um, what Benjamin Franklin said. Benjamin Franklin... Um, as the author says, exemplified so many virtues of Americans have come to admire. People found him practical, earthy, affable, witty, and above all, tolerant. A few weeks before he died, Ben responded to an inquiry by President Ezra Stiles of Yale concerning his religious faith. So just as he's dying, people are wondering, oh, is Ben a Christian or is he a man of reason? Has he put faith as his highest authority or is science his highest authority? And when he was asked... Um, by, by uh, Ezra Stiles concerning his religious faith. This is what he answered. He said, As to Jesus of Nazareth, pause, I have, pause, some doubts as to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and I think it needless uh, to busy myself with it now, as I expect soon to have an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. So obviously he's about to die, so he's going to find out one way or the other if, if Jesus actually is divine. Yep. I see no harm, however, in its believing... Sorry, I see no harm, however, in its being believed if that belief has good consequence of making his doctrines more respected and better observed. So here... Um, the author of the book says, something of the American spirit is here. It's the spirit of Franklin's time, the age of reason. Questions of dogma seem to be unimportant and hardly worth fretting about. What was immensely more important was behaviour. Do our beliefs make us more tolerant, more respectful of those who differ from us, and more responsive to the true spirit of Jesus? And so that's a response against some of the hatred and religious bigotry that had been on show during the age of reformation so even though there was a really important question of authority that luther raised it did create wars and there was a great deal of conflict across europe and there were civil wars in england and holland and france and spain and in spain the roman catholics came to the fore in france the huguenots who were the protestants fought against the um the roman catholics and were given an enclave at the end of their uh, war uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, Belgium ends up seceding from the Netherlands and becoming a Catholic country and the Netherlands becomes Protestant and of course Henry VIII in England actually ends up embracing Protestantism and so there is a Protestant um, framework developed in England that the Spanish try and draw back when they try to invade England under his daughter Elizabeth's reign when the Spanish invade England to try and take it back for the Roman Catholic Church. So with all that in the background um, here you see Benjamin Franklin talking about um, that as being an old way of thinking. So Benjamin Franklin uh, kind of embodies the spirit of the age of reason, which is seeing the Reformation and the Middle Ages, I suppose, as centuries of faith that were defined by whether the church should have authority or the Bible should have authority. But in, in, in 
Franklin's mind, faith is also caught up with superstition and the idea that there are demons and angels and anything unknown must be attributed to spiritual forces. However, in the age of reason, because of the rise of science, he's now replacing the authority of um, of Christendom and Christianity with the authority of reason. Uh, so he re- he reasons that the best way for human beings to be happy is not through emotions and myths and superstitions, but through science and understanding the world that was created. And that's what we're going to explore today. So I thought it would be a really good artefact. But Tim, yeah, do you have any thoughts on Benjamin Franklin? Yeah, um, I don't know a lot about him other than um, what you said, but I think it's interesting this idea of as the age of reason comes about and trying to stop these wars by just trying to flattening out um, the faith and essentially saying, look, it's we can disagree about these things of faith. Does it need to lead to conflicts and wars? Um, I mean, you had different. You had Catholics and Protestants, you know, killing each other over whether you should baptize infants or not, mm. and um, Protestants and Protestants at war about whether you should baptize infants or not. Mm. Like these kind of big doctrinal statements, and we now as inheritors of that, you know, age of reason um, philosophy, we still have that ideas of wasn't it silly that people would have such significant conflicts over these uh, doctrines but it's helpful for us now to see that we are inheriting these particular views that we're actually now able to uh, not able to we we do um sort of uh, flatten out some of these doctrinal distinctions um and wonder whether it's worth arguing over doctrines at all um and because of you know, Benjamin Franklin, this age of reason that comes along, the scientism that comes. Um, you've got Kant who um, separates what we can know via science from what we can't know about God. And so he sort of separates those two and puts them in different uh, worlds that you can un- understand and inhabit. And so and it's okay if they're in conflict. Um, and there's debate about whether um, Kant is doing that uh, to protect religious thought and separate it from the world or whether he's because he's anti-religious as people go back and forward on that. Um, but we, we do largely separate those things. We have this disconnect between the scientific world that we know and understand and contest and this religious world of faith. And it's okay to have both and it's okay if you personally have conflict between those. But we see that today in the debates about not bringing faith into the public sphere. Um, and so we can see where this sort of uh, trajectory lands over the next few hundred years as well. Yeah, so this has a really big impact on our evangelism today because what we're looking at today is how do we as Christians who do believe in doctrine and think that the Bible is our authority, for example, how do we then interface with science and people who have re- replaced the authority of the Bible with science? Like what is our evangelistic um, response to that? And looking at its uh you know the story of faith and reason coexisting and sometimes being at conflict with each other across a couple of centuries it's really helpful for us to get that in our heads as we then approach that in our generation so that's what we're really keen to do today have a look at that and it comes back to what we talked about joel and i talked about the very first episode some of that barna research about um the millennial christians knowing that their peers would have be better off if they had a personal relationship with Jesus, but feeling really awkward and anxious about actually challenging them on that. Mm. I think that's part of that, that deep embedding, even if we don't notice it, of this mm. idea that, well, faith beliefs are different to mm. other beliefs. And so it's hard for me to push against someone else's deeply held faith beliefs because I've sort of 
taken on this idea that actually faith beliefs are less important or less true in some way because you know, they've got hard sciences, we can trust those and we can believe those um, and passionately fight for those. But when it comes to the faith beliefs that we have, um, I don't know, is it rude for me to tell you that you're wrong? I'm not sure. And part of this comes from this separation of um, reason from faith that happens during this period. It also feels like it, it becomes a question of truth. So uh, it's almost like now truth is uh, the scientific realm. But then because spirituality is, can be a little bit more questionable, it's like, well, we're not going to be, we can't rely on those truths. So I feel like that's a question that often mm-hmm. comes up in people's minds these days is that, well, I actually believe all these scientific truths, but until it comes to talking about God and Jesus, well, I don't know if that's the truth or not. Would you agree with that? Well, it's a subjective truth. So mm. this is where you get the idea that it's, it's lovely if it's true for you. It's lovely that you have a faith in something. People will kind of express that. Um, uh, my father-in-law is, is one of those ones who's just expressed, you know, it's really lovely that you have something to believe. Um, but the idea of truth there, it becomes purely speculative and subjective that it's nice that you have your truth, I have my truth. And because we've separated faith from reason, the we don't have an arbiter. To, we don't have a way of actually assessing these truths um, in our popular discourse. We don't have a way of actually bringing these doctrines together and saying, well, no, it's important that we wrestle these out. It's important that we actually think about these things. Um, there are doctrinal truths. There are faith truths that are more or less true, um, more than less line up with actual reality. But it's hard to have those conversations because of where we are. And again, we're seeing the seeds of that through this age of reason. So as Protestant Christians who believe in the authority of God's word, it's really important for us to understand a bit of the history of how Protestants have been engaging with uh, questions that have been brought up uh, through the scientific era. And what we said at the beginning of the podcast, Joel, was that um, the age of the Reformation was really this struggle between has the church got authority or is the Bible the authority? And that's coming from an era of Christendom where within Christendom, Christianity itself wasn't questioned but in this new age that comes after the Reformation there is this new questioning of Christianity mm. and some of the there's, there's a lot that laid the seeds of this new uh, age uh, the Renaissance was a rediscovery of uh, Greco-Roman philosophy and art and there was this new embrace of uh, you know going back to those ancient texts which weren't Christian and looking for new philosophical frameworks that were outside of Christianity but also the rise of science um, just before the the age of reason is really interesting too so some of the pioneering uh, minds of modern science are people like Copernicus who lived in 1473 to 1543 and he insisted that the sun not the earth was the center of the universe John Kepler, 1571 to 1630, and he concluded that the sun emitted a magnetic force that moved the other planets in their courses. And Galileo in 1564 to 1642, who made a telescope to examine the planets and provide uh, that the acceleration of falling bodies was constant. So there was this uh, demythologizing of the natural world. There was a, a way of explaining it through science rather than just through uh, spirituality and I think that probably came to a bit of a pinnacle with Isaac Newton who was in 1642 to 1727 and Isaac Newton um, pu- published a really momentous work the, math- 
mathematical principles of natural philosophy and all the laws of motion in the heavens and on earth were harmonized in a master principle for the universe in the law of gravitation. So that, that all kind of took place in between the Reformation and this age we're talking about today, which is the age of reason. And what you're seeing there is Benjamin Franklin actually is a product of um, Christendom because he was brought up uh, within the Christian world presumably going to church as tim you were saying before the podcast started he was he was going to whitfield's Mm. um sermons and he was really interested in the outdoor preaching of these revivalists which we're going to talk about in a minute but um newton had such a big impact on people like benjamin franklin because uh the medieval world saw unseen spirits and angels and demons and superstition is a way to explain what's happening in the world. But now that's being replaced by physical laws and mathematical symbols. And so people start thinking differently. And, you know, there's a great story of Luther um, who was riding in a storm and he's riding on his horse. He's a medieval man. He's riding on his horse in a storm and there's lightning striking trees and this big storm. And in his medieval thinking, he's thinking that God is trying to kill him with this storm so that God is sending the lightning bolts personally to assail Luther because of his sin. Now, Luther would later come to realise that he needed to think a little bit differently about those concepts when he read Romans and he read Psalms. But um, that medieval thinking is just, you can't imagine someone thinking about driving through a thunderstorm now in their car, thinking that the lightning that's hitting the ground is actually God trying to kill them. Because we live in a post-scientific world where we've actually got these new explanations for some of these um, phenomena. So basically Alexander Pope wrote that after Newton, he wrote this, he said, Nature and nature's laws lay hidden in night. God said, let Newton be, and there was light. So there was this idea that, you know, he's, he's actually kind of reframing the whole idea of the Genesis account and saying Newton is almost like writing a new chapter of the way we see the world, which was quite... Um, quite controversial at the time but yeah so this these these thinkers have actually has helped us to start creating the modern world and it would be not up until the end of the 1700s when the steam engine is produced that the industrial revolution would really bring all this science into our practical lived experience as Mm -hmm. well where we now start living with the product of all this mathematics the new machines that we create which actually change the social relationships and really reframe the way we all think about the world. And so the question today is, well, how does the gospel get preached into this world to give us a bit of an insight into um, maybe how can we think about evangelism in this new scientific reality that we live in as well? In that sense of, um, I do remember there was that story you were talking about um, when Ben Franklin was first uh, uh, heard Whitfield preach, he ended up getting distracted because Correct me if I'm wrong, but Whitfield had a very loud voice. Is that right? And he yeah. could be heard from a long way away. So then Ben Franklin got confused or distracted and started thinking, I wonder how many people can actually hear him. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, so the story is, I mean, Whitfield, um, so he's British. Uh, he, he comes across to America. We'll, we'll talk more as we go about this, mm. this cross-Atlantic um, relationship between the revivalists. But as Whitfield is preaching, he's going around, Brendan Franklin hears of this man and he hears of his reputation of being heard from a long way away. And <laughs> Franklin basically can't compute that. He thinks that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And so he goes to listen to this man. Uh, and when he hears him, he realises this man really does have a loud, loud voice. Um, but I think what's really indicative of Franklin as a character and this age of reason um, ideology, this uh, this. The philosophy that is coming through at this time is that rather than actually listening to Whitfield's words about 
scriptures about God and about revival, he is trying to calculate, well, how far can this voice go? How many people can hear him? So he's yeah. measuring distances. He's calculating semicircles. Um, and he, he's thinking through scientifically what is going on here for this man to have reached so far. And he does his personal calculation um, on his, you know, whatever his version of is the napkin on the, um, in the cafe. But he works out that there's about 30,000 people could probably hear Whitfield right. in open air. But I just 30, think it's in... 30,000? 30,000, wow. yeah, which is huge. Without um, a microphone. Without a microphone, yeah, yeah, yeah completely, but without um, any device other than his own voice. Um, and I assume the, the actual environment you're in plays a factory there as well, and I don't know how calculated he got, but... What I just find humorous about that story and indicative of Franklin is that he is thinking scientifically about Whitfield's presentation. Yeah. He's not letting it affect his spirit uh, and the way that he's actually speaking to him about the truths of the gospel. Um, now, what goes on uh, throughout his... Um, they actually become quite good friends. Uh, Franklin end up being a bit of a patron to Whitfield in terms of his publications and getting his word out. So he quite admires... Uh, Whitfield as as a preacher and as a public persona uh, and what he is doing, but as we've already heard from these quotes around, particularly his time of death, is that there's no particular evidence mm. that Franklin took any of this on as personal faith himself. Um, he just was interested in the social elements and the the friendship elements that he had with Whitfield. And then I suppose that story is a representation of the age of reason and mm. how that came to being. I mean, as we said, it's a, it was a shift in culture as a response to some of the religious wars that had happened. Um, and then obviously in, within that, there's the, the move towards science mm. um, and a questioning of, well, does uh, God have all the answers? Because of, like, I'm guessing as a reaction to how the Reformation actually kind of spelled the end of Christendom is that, oh, actually, maybe we don't have all, the, God doesn't have all the answers for us. Maybe people are questioning that. Stu, would you say at that time, the age of reason and science kind of um, conflating together, that Christianity was perhaps on trial? Yeah, I think so. Um, there, there's, there's a, there were uh, some Roman Catholic um, leaders who were coming out against Galileo and persecuting him for what he was doing and there's a quite famous and um, really brutal story behind all that if people want to look into that some more. So there was this sense that these new thinkers were threatening church's teaching. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing that, it, uh, that from my point of view is I don't actually think the idea of the earth being um, revolving around the sun is actually questioning anything from the Bible. So it was actually interesting in that case that there was some early conflict between church authority and science, but it wasn't actually the Bible and science. Mm. Um, those um, conversations will develop a bit later, as we'll see in a minute. But but it, what's interesting about the church being on trial is there's this sense of this new authority is butting up against old authority, and so how's that going to play out? And I think that's the story of today's podcast. And it's going to change the way Christendom actually um, evangelizes. Uh, sorry, Christians evangelize in the era of Christendom. So there was this sense for generations, actually 30 generations of Christians um held on to the idea of being Christian during Christendom without ever seriously challenging it. So there was the majority of people in Europe who were Christians just were Christian. So generation after generation were born and they were baptised into the church and then they were 
um, you know, married by the church and they were given their last rites, etc., etc. And there was this maintenance of a Christian law and political reality for generations. But the Reformation unintentionally shattered that. So it wasn't just science that put um, some of these forces at play. It was the Reformation. And that's why we talked about that last week and again this week because unintentionally the Reformation shattered that tradition traditionalism within christianity so this idea that i'm a christian because i belong to a christian family or i belong to a christian village or a christian nation um, and if my nation is protestant then that means i'm i have to be protestant too that's where a lot of these wars were coming from that kind of logic but really at its heart the reformation set loose by luther was as an individual i need to make a commitment to christ myself and i need to have faith in christ's work on the cross to save me not the church being my authority but the bible giving me that understanding of grace and so this um i think created this new uh this new concern and what i'd like to say is that during the era of christendom there was this view of difference in what we could call a sectarian framework so sectarian differences were i'm right you're wrong so luther and the pope were arguing with each other and the pope was threatening luther's life trying to kill him because that was a sectarian binary relation uh, argument. It's either you or me that is right. But what happens after the Reformation, uh, and and we're going to get onto this next, which is the the role of America in the, the new world in in this discussion is within the old world within Europe. There's this massive sectarian fight going on across the whole continent uh, between Roman Catholicism and these new Protestant ideals. But at the same time, there are migrants travelling over to the American colonies and. Um, by 1646, there are apparently 18 different languages being spoken <laughs> on the Hudson River alone wow. by these colonists. So these people are coming from all the countries of Europe and going to America. And what's going to be one of the consequences of this is this old sectarianism is now going to be challenged by this new idea that there's no one single state church so in europe the, the states are fighting over who the state church is going to be is it going to be protestant or is it going to be roman catholic so in england um henry the becomes the head of the protestant church the church of england which he starts himself whereas in america a new reality happens which is uh, a new word creeps into the christian vernacular which is denominations mm -hmm. and denominations replace sectarianism because a denomination a denominational framework says that not one church will have um, you know, it's not like you're true and we're right or, you know, vice versa. It's actually even if churches disagree, they can all be in Christ. So there's this idea of denominations who have doctrinal differences, but they're still Christian. Whereas the debate between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants was who is the true church. And so now as all these uh, colonies are having all these different ideas coming, there's this uh, non-conformity as well, like the, the the Puritans who were being persecuted in England, the Church of England Pur were persecuting Puritans. Some of them left to America and they started their own denominations, but then there were settlers from Germany and settlers from Holland and they were bringing their own churches too. So there's this unintentional plurification of uh, divergent views, but they're all considered Christian. And I think that is a really noticeable change that's happening at the start of this era as well. Is that, do you think um, one of the reasons you said there's so many people are kind of migrating, you said 18 different languages mm. on the Hudson River in New mm. York, is that because they'd seen what had happened in in Western Europe and they've seen, seen that 
the Reformation had led to the end of Christendom and led to a lot of wars. They're like, oh no, we want to come over. We're coming over here. We still the Puritans, for example, were mm. persecuted, like you said. But we're going to come over here and try and ensure that that doesn't happen. They'd been like probably scarred by the fact that there's so yeah. many people were fighting over things that right yeah. and wrong. Well, well, they've they've escaped some of those. Uh uh, toxic environments because they want to have freedom to believe what they want to believe and so there's this idea that we've all come to this new new place to believe what we want to believe so we should let each other believe what we want to believe and there you see some of the seeds of that idea of Franklin saying that tolerance is really important so the American spirit of America is it's important that people tolerate difference rather than try and destroy it and snuff it out which was happening on the mainland but then the funny consequence of that is if the state is running a church the state is responsible for paying all the the pastors, the state is responsible for saying these are the parishioners of this church and, and and yet when there's this freedom to believe whatever you want, all of a sudden the emphasis goes on to the churches to burden, to take on, sorry, the, the, the emphasis goes on the churches to shoulder the burden of evangelism themselves, not the state. And so now we get this really interesting, which is really relevant for our context because where does this idea of evangelism come from in our context within the age of reason and beyond? Uh, basically, each individual church had the burden of evangelizing unconverted people and nurturing those believers. So no state support and no state protection. Christianity was on its own. So this creates what we now call volunteerism because deprived of state support, the church actually is on mission by itself. And so preaching the gospel becomes really important in that. So what we're going to see in a minute is some of these famous preachers that brought revival into America and into England came from this kind of idea that people could voluntarily commit to a particular denomination. So a preacher would go out, preach the gospel and invite people to believe the message and then join the church, which is very different to what it was like in the preceding era where where a leader of a country would become a certain faith and the people who were in that country were considered to be part of that faith as well so this volunteerism is very individualistic and it comes from the reformation where people have to make a personal commitment to christ so people can accept or reject the gospel as they pleased and the denominations had to win converts and they had to raise their own funds without state aid and so what we're going to talk about in a minute is this new great awakening is produced by all these churches going out and preaching their messages to people and giving people an opportunity to respond to that message or not. And it actually has an incredible impact, um, which we'll get onto in a sec, particularly in America with Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the early preachers who was in this new volunteerism sort of mindset. Mm. Tim, do you want to tell, I mean, the just brought up the Great Awakening, and I, I think we know a, a few of those um, preachers that were part of that. Do you want to just give us a quick run over of what the Great Awakening is and, and what that actually meant. You've um, talked about it a little bit there, Stuart, mm. like using their own resources and not needing the state. But who was part of that? I mean, um, uh, I'll, I'll give three names so we can talk about them all. So we've already talked about Whitfield, but there's also Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley. Um, Tim, do you want to want to fill us in on those on those two guys? Please? Yeah, so uh, very, very briefly. So Jonathan Edwards um, was in the colonies, and so he is in the American side of that Atlantic relationship. Um, and he is one of the most influential philosopher theologians in American history. His, his influence is really, really um, grand in that trajectory of American uh, history and American thought. So he's a Calvinist, he's a Puritan, uh, and he gets involved in these uh, revival meetings of, of 
preaching. One of the things that struck me about what you were saying, Stu, is that as the nation church just start to break down, as you have the people's faith not tied to the particular prince of their pro- mm, province, mm, mm. Um, is you need this emphasis on individual commitment because yeah, it's no, I'm no longer a, yeah. a Christian because... I'm no longer a Lutheran because my prince is a Lutheran or mm. a Catholic because my prince is a Catholic. Mm. It's now up to uh, the preacher to convince me of my own need mm. for salvation. I think that starts to play into this as well, this individualism mm. uh, of the gospel of making a personal response. And Edwards is definitely tapping into that in that he's going to churches and he's preaching revival to those who are gathered in the church. So he's emphasising to them their need to take this on personally. And he does do outdoor things, he does things, but... Largely speaking, many of the people would have thought of themselves as Christians because of by nature of who they were, their families, their country, where they come from, their heritage. Whereas what he is doing and where this evangelism, uh, evangelicalism is happening, uh, as would become later known, is this individual conversion aspect is really significant. And so one of Edward's most famous sermons is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he's giving this picture of we're all on the precipice of hell. We all deserve, because of our sin, to be um, excluded from God and sent to hell for all of eternity. We need to make a response. Mm. We need to individually respond to the offer that is given in the gospel um, to take Jesus as our personal Lord and Saviour. So those kinds of ideas and that kind of language starts to come out during this time as they push for more of a personal allegiance rather than a national allegiance because of who you were politically tied with. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's really fundamental in understanding evangelicalism, which emerges at this time through these great awakenings started by people like Jonathan Edwards who are calling on people to hear the word of God and respond to it. So you you see in Mark where Jesus, in chapter Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, um, the kingdom of heaven has come. Repent and believe the good news. These preachers are really hearing that as the message that they want to continue to preach. It's mm. not about a country actually adopting a faith as a country anymore. It's actually you as an individual is Jesus your king. And this is why it was quite controversial because people like the Puritans were saying, well, actually our highest authority is not the king of England. It's actually Jesus. And it's it's the God of the universe who Jesus brings the kingdom and um, I think that's a really big shift. And so it's quite controversial uh, in some ways. And interestingly, these guys get out and do a lot of open-air preaching. They write a lot of books. They write tracts. So this has also come at a time when the printing press has just meant that mm. mass communication is possible. And so it's a really fascinating thing too that transport um, is easier too with trains and with, uh, you know, you're no longer just a boundary rider on a horse. Soon in America, there'll be train networks that in the 19th century that will be able to, you know, uh, spread these messages. Uh, travel is becoming cheaper between um, England and the continent of uh, the American continent. So speakers are invited from England to come out. And Jonathan Edwards, a great American preacher, but then he, then we see uh, John Wesley and John Whit, uh, Whitfield being invited out from England, who are two Anglican ministers yeah. uh, with two different takes on on this Protestant idea. But again, there's this idea of tolerance where within there's differences between these preachers, but overall they're calling on people to make a personal mm. commitment to Christ. And Tim, you were saying before the podcast that a good way of understanding this um, evangelicalism that we're calling it, uh, there's that framework that you uh, were talking about? Yeah, so there's uh, a guy called, let me pull up his name, um, 
David W. Bebbing, Bebbington. Uh, and so he's a historian, uh, a church historian, and his most classic book is called Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, a history from 1730 to 1980. So he's looking at the British uh, evangelicals and what's happening there, and so it covers uh, part of this period. But what he's trying to do as a historian is to identify what were the important parts of this evangelical revival and evangelical as it became known um, as a part of but distinct from the Church of England as a state church. And so he identifies four main qualities, which has become known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral. And so the four things that he's looked at in history, and so these are the four things that have been important through evangelical history. One is, um, he says, Biblicism, which is a particular regard for the Bible. So the Word of God as the authoritative text, that's really important. It's not the church. Um, it's not uh, Newton, as that great quote from Alexander Pope was saying. It's the Bible is the authoritative text. That is where truth, spiritual truth is to be found. So that's really important. That's the first of the qualities. The second one is uh, crucicentrism. It's the fancy word, but basically a focus on the atoning work of Christ. So what Jesus does in his uh, life, death and resurrection, but particularly focusing around um, that cruc- uh, what's happening there on the atonement. That's really crucial. And so that's a, a key part of evangelical call. Um, the conversionism, this is that idea that we need to make individual commitment, that it's not just because I'm part of a clan or a country or a nation or a family, but it's an individual call to respond, uh, And which I think was an important thing, what you said, Stu. This isn't new as in like it's a brand new idea. This is a harking back to what Jesus was doing or what John the Baptist yep. was doing. I've just been looking at John the Baptist for the last two weeks with our, our kids at Soul yep. Revival Kids and it's this idea that it's a personal commitment to turn and repent and to believe. Um, and so we even see in Jesus when he's going about um, to the Jewish church and the early disciples going to the Jews and saying, your Messiah has come, but it's not enough that you're a Jew and part of this lineage. There's a personal commitment yeah. there. We see that in the story of Zacchaeus um, and many, many others, of course. But that conversionism, that um, human beings need to be converted and it's an individual response. That's and really and key. Hence this is why it's called the Great Awakening at this time, right? Because it's, like it's time to take personal responsibility for your faith. Yeah. That's part of the, yeah, yeah what's going on, yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah. So that's the third. And then the fourth one um, is activism. So the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed uh, in, in effort. It has an outworking into society. And so, again, um, lots of significant movements here, but we've got, um, you know, orphanages, we've got pub- public schooling, we've got... Um, respite we've got care for the poor we've got um, the anti-slavery movement you've got all of these big movements in britain which is being led by these evangelicals it's being led by these people who see their personal salvation in christ having an outworking out into society so there he's for so the bible is central the atonement in the cross that's central there's a conversion it's personal responsibility and it has a active representation presentation out into the world it's not just personal belief as i can keep this to myself mm. it needs to go out and it has social effect they're mm. the four things that he identifies how does it you know you spoke about jonathan edwards just before having that uh, quite a fire and brimstone preaching style how does that f- would you think that fits within those four qualities that um Bevington is talking about yeah it's interesting i'm sure there's a lot that um historians more qualified than me can say about Edward's preaching but I think the connection in my mind is that that push for conversionism there's a there was an interesting idea that 
Jonathan Edwards was okay appealing to emotions and even preaching terror when necessary. And I think what he's doing there is there's a particular cultural moment for them, this polemic against national ideas of faith, that I'm a Christian because I come from England or German or um, Holland or wherever it is. And so, I mean, he's preaching these fire and brimstone sermons in churches often. And so he's saying that those who are gathered, who are gathered because I presumably they identify as Christians, and he's saying to them, no, 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 this is not enough for you to have this corporate understanding of that you are corporately um, part of a Christian community or a society. You need to take this personally. And so I think what he's doing there is the fire and brimstone preaching is particularly polemic at that point because he's trying to shake people out of a complacency, out of um, uh, a thought that they can just be culturally Christian without really taking it seriously for themselves. Certainly in Australia, in our particular moment right now, I'm not sure that that is our cultural moment. And so that kind, that style of preaching is not where we are at in terms of communicating the gospel. There might be people in our churches who are more culturally Christian than they are individual salvation, um, but I don't think that's certainly where, where we are. And so maybe that sort of style um, and that device may not be the way that we would choose to do evangelism now because we're facing different challenges. We're facing the challenges of people who are agnostic or just benign about Christianity. They think that Christianity is dangerous, um, that we're extremists, that we're fundamentalists. And so when we face a different cultural moment, I think it calls for a different presentation of the same gospel truth. And that's where that biblicism is really important, that we actually have the same gospel truth, that we the Bible has not changed, the message of the gospel hasn't changed. But with each generation and in every culture around the world, we're going to have uh, different ways, winsome, clear, engaging ways in which to be able to present that in a way that through God and through the work of his Holy Spirit engages hearts and lives and prayerfully that he's growing his kingdom through that. Yeah, and I think the two things that come out of that too is that um, there's actually, when you, you talk about the modern um, take on some of these things, first of all, we see that our our whole topic for this um, season about uh, whatever happened to evangelism, the, what we're doing now is we're actually asking the question, where did evangelism as we know it today come from? And even though it's very ancient and it goes back to Jesus and how he preached, it's also picked up again by the reformers and then it's picked up by uh, these revivalists like Jonathan Edwards in calling on people to have a personal response rather than just a big corporate response because I'm part of one country. So this rediscovery of um, personal evangelism is is going to then flavour the next few centuries of what it looks like to grow the church. So volunteerism makes it important for churches to recruit their own members rather than the church just being given those members by the state. So this means that people actually are engaging with their culture and actually calling on people to... They're preaching to their hearts and their minds. And so that's that's the first thing. We're seeing emerging this idea of evangelism, which is actually we're saying whatever happened to that in this series. Like, have we lost that sense that we're calling on people to make a personal commitment to Christ? And the second part of what Tim says is illustrative of why maybe um, more Christians aren't feeling as confident as Jonathan Jonathan Edwards to preach about heaven and hell because there's a combined cultural cringe from a lot of Christians about that kind of preaching from that era that was considered to be very judgmental. 
and this idea of tolerance that came about in the age of reason has got to such an extent now that it's not just about um, you know two people can both hold on to truth and it's not up to one person to tell the other person what to think but in um, the uh, post-truth environment of um, where we live in today of uh, uh, post-modernism people have actually gone to the extent of saying that for me to tell someone my thoughts and to try and even encourage them to think about considering my thoughts, that can actually be hateful now because, and it can be hurtful to the individual. So we're exploring that today uh, and the rest of this podcast. How do we engage with this changing reality? But it's really helpful for me to put a flag in the sand and go, oh, okay, so this is when kind of broadly people started really thinking differently about evangelism. And yes, there's been evangelism going on right through the centuries between Christ and the Reformation, definitely. And there have been people making personal commitments to Christ in every generation for those 30 generations of Christians that have lived between Christ and the Reformation. But now what's happening is there's just this new discussion about what is authoritative. Is is the Bible authoritative or is faith authoritative more generally or is it science? And so... What you're seeing, interestingly, is in the uh, preachers like Jonathan Edwards, they haven't started to grapple that with that as an apologetic yet. They're not sort of arguing about whether faith and science actually should be used as authority. What they're calling on people to do is have a personal decision. So the first step in this new development of evangelism is this real focus on a personal commitment to Christ which actually transforms nations more than just the prince becoming a Christian so what we're going to see when we look at Wesley and Whitfield is this huge preaching ministry that thousands and thousands and thousands of people are converted across America and England and their personal conversions people are personally taking on a faith and this evangelism has reshaped whole nations because people one at a time were becoming Christians which I find really fascinating Really fascinating, and it's interesting how it developed from we 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 started in Acts um, and talking about how it started and people having personal conversions, and then it morphed into we talked about Christendom, Christendom, and saying that well the states are almost responsible for my faith, mm. and then it's a reaction again to what we're talking about right now in terms of the Great Awakening, and saying no, you need to take a personal faith. It's very very important, and Jesus talked about that. Uh, returning to the Great Awakening, John Wesley. I thought we might have a look at Tim. Do you want to give a couple couple more brief synopsis of, of his life? <laughs> yeah, so John Wesley, 1703 to 1791. So he is a minister uh, in the Church of England, but interestingly, because he disagrees on some fairly fundamental doctrines, he isn't ever given a parish. So then he finds himself, as like Stu said before, there's a number of Puritans who ended up in this boat. Um, John Bunyan was a kind of a famous one as well, who was never fully authorised by the uh, state church and so found themselves without a clear pulpit and but wanted to preach anyway. And so he goes out and he starts preaching, which is a bit conflicting for John Wesley because he actually quite likes the Anglican church. There's a number of things that he resonates really well with and he does have some arguments with them and he has some disagreements with them. But he never wanted to fully disassociate from them, but again found himself forced out because he wouldn't compromise on some of the things that they, um, yeah, felt that was important. So he becomes uh, famous for being more Arminian than Calvinist. So in terms of Calvinism, there's the idea that you uh, there's a predestination uh, and that God is fully active. Um, and in some presentations of that, the individual becomes less active uh, and he wanted to emphasize no the active role of the individual that god gives he called a provening grace 
that there is a grace just given out generally to people, um, but it's really up to the individual to respond. And because he shifts that balance away from God being the primary actor to the human being the primary actor, that was one of the big disagreements that he had with the prevailing theology at the time. The other big difference was that he had uh, Christian perfectionism. So all Christians believe that we can become more like Christ, that we're growing and maturing in him, we're we're growing in the fruits of the Spirit. Um, But the 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 opposite, I suppose, of Wesley's view is that we are continually sanctified. We're becoming more like Jesus, but we recognise that we will never become fully perfect until we enter a new creation, until we are in that new space with God forever. Whereas a Christian perfectionist idea is, no, we actually can move not just towards more Christ-like, but actually to be more Christ-like and be Christ-like in this life. And so there's a striving after being perfect, and so that comes out in a lot of the, the methods that he used, which is where the, the Methodism comes from, these rhythms and routines to life, the structures around life that are trying to help people become more and more sanctified uh, to the point of perfection. And so, again, there's a little bit of a, a balance there. We want to say, yeah, this is great. It's good to become more like Jesus. But there's a fundamental shift in whether we can achieve that in this life or not. And he was erring more. And then, no, it can be achieved in this life. And so there's a bit of a, a failure on our part if we don't do that, uh, whereas uh, um, a more moderate position and what I think where we would be aligned is that, no, we are, it's good to strive towards sanctification, but there's also that recognition that until we die and enter rest, we won't be ever free of the old man. Yeah. I, I, I find it interesting that he... Uh uh, some a piece of information that I read about John Wesley was that he flouted parish boundaries, <laughs> um, and, and the reason for that, obviously, the reason that he was doing that was he, well, he decided to go and preach outside because he's like, well, I, I still believe in this very mm. strongly. Well, I he wasn't given a parish, and so yeah. he didn't have boundaries to work in, but he just felt this conviction to preach. Like he, he felt. Uh, and part of that was there were deficiencies in the church that he wanted to speak against, and part of that was that conversionism, that need for individual revival. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like he 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 flouted boundaries. He's like, well, if I don't have my own parish, I'm just going to preach wherever I can be taken. So his belief in the p- taking personal responsibility for your faith was so strong that it's it, it's a he's speaking against the church in a way, or the established church in a way, saying I need to step out and still preach outside regardless of parish boundaries because these people need to take personal responsibility. That was his conviction. Yeah, so the parish system was assuming that everybody within the parish or the boundaries of that particular parish church were Christian right. and that that particular church was responsible for all the souls in that parish. And so the church would ordain who could preach in that church and that was to those souls. And so all of England was all carved up into parishes and so you know each parish had a church minister. And then... Um, itinerant preachers preaching outside of that boundary or a threat to that system right. and they they um yeah caused the problem because if you were but you know people like john bunyan you were mentioning who wrote um pilgrim's progress which is the second highest selling book outside the bible in history it's a massive seller it's a much loved book by many christians but bunyan wrote that while he was in prison because he was imprisoned and he was imprisoned until he promised he wouldn't preach outside a church building and he said no i can't promise that because there's all these people that need to hear the gospel so bunyan took that very strong stand wesley had a similar motivation and then also um you've got to remember though that wesley actually didn't come to that on his own uh he was actually watching whitfield go through that process first so whitfield the other great um, 
uh, awakening preacher, when he travelled to America, he gave John Wesley this idea that, yeah, we, maybe we can get out and preach to people <coughs> excuse me, outside the four walls of the church. And so as we hear from Benjamin Franklin trying to work out how many people can hear Wesley, uh, Whitfield rather, outside the church. But interestingly, Whitfield, this other preacher at the same time, he was a Calvinist, not an Arminianist. And so he also didn't b- believe in perfectionism. So he was more of a mainline Protestant and a Calvinist. And so he believed in predestination and, and he disagreed with the Armenianism but what was really interesting is as these two men preached this new volunteerism or this new denominationalism meant that two men could preach some the same message with some different focuses on on um, motivation for example both call themselves Christians rather than I have the truth and this man's not a Christian they both regarded themselves as Christians but they just disagreed with each other so this is a new flavor of evangelicalism that we we have come to just see as normal these days that you know the local baptist church won't baptize infants but the local anglican church will but they both consider themselves Mm. to be evangelical christians if they preach the word of god well interestingly this was such a massive issue at the time that the newspapers were reporting i mean this is a massive phenomenon thousands of people become christians these huge open-air gatherings these guys were the rock stars of their generation right basically and the church is trying to work out how to deal with these rock stars of Whitfield and Wesley who are going and preaching to these massive crowds. Um, they are kind of like the forerunners of the Billy Graham kind of crusades where you'd have 100,000 people go to the um, Melbourne uh, football stadium down there in Melbourne, you know, to, just to hear a preacher. You know, this is the similar kind of thing back 300 years ago. And anyway, the newspapers were under it reporting the differences between the sermons. And so then they're picking up on the <laughs> conflict between Wesley and Whitfield on this Armenianism Calvinist stuff. And they're like, well, who's right? And they're trying to do what the media does today, like create a story. And there's this famous uh, interaction with a journalist in Whitfield where he says, do you think you will see Mr. Wesley at church, uh, in heaven? Do you think you'll see Mr. Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield very um, carefully thinks about it and has a fantastic response. He goes, no, I don't think I'll see Mr. Wesley in heaven. And the reporter straight away thinks, oh, that means... Whitfield thinks that Wesley's going to hell because he preaches Armenianism rather than Calvinism. But then very cleverly after a pause, Whitfield says, Mr. Wesley will be so far in front of me in heaven that I won't be able to see him. So because <laughs> he's so much more godly than I am, I'll be so far back. And so that's a really nice, I think, story to illustrate denominationalism and volunteerism where this, this new individualistic uh, view of someone becoming a Christian, um, they need to make a commitment to Christ just like Zacchaeus needed to make a Christian a commitment to Christ, then every person needs to be born again rather than just be part of a church and baptised and, oh, that means I'm part of the church because of my family or whatever. So, yeah, so that that's leading to great social change. So today we would consider the south of the United States as quite a religious uh, Bible built within the United States, but before the Great Awakenings and the revivals that broke out, it was actually considered to be the least religious part of the United States mm. because it was on the frontier in the in the Western um, context. And so, but after the revivalists went through and the Great Awakening took place, these places become the most Christian because there's thousands and thousands of itinerant preachers that are going out as well as these big star preachers. There's guys getting on horses and just going into towns and preaching the gospel, inviting people to become Christian. They're repenting and starting a church in these you know, tin pot little western towns. It's very reminiscent of Paul going into um, Berea and preaching the gospel and people becoming Christians and personally changing their lives, setting up a church and then and that, this is how the Southern Baptist um, organisation started through these kind of um, this evangelism that we're talking about today. 
an interesting little tip in that I read about Whitfield as you were speaking that he preached this many times. Apparently he preached 18,000 times to at least 10 million Great Britons and the uh, people of the colonies. So he was definitely getting around and, yeah. and telling, telling people about it. <laughs> Which was getting outside the church and the parish boundaries to do that. So it was quite controversial. But Tim was also mentioning earlier, Tim, you were mentioning that um, part of evangelicalism was changing the way you live not just believing personally in Christ, but actually changing your behaviour. And John Wesley, for example, was a great advocate for abolitionism, like you were saying. He was Mm. trying, later in life, he was really into ending the slave trade. But it was changing these societies where the message was being preached. There's famous stories in the Welsh revival about coal production going down as a consequence of the revival. And so a a preacher would go into a, a Welsh coal mining village preach the gospel and people would become christians and then coal production would decrease and they went in trying to work out what was happening and they worked out that the coal miners who'd become christians had decided that their speech wasn't edifying because they swore too much so they stopped swearing and you know so they took um the Bible's edict to not let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth literally and stop swearing. And as a result, the poor old donkeys that they had been driving in the coal mines to get the coal from the depths of the coal mine up to the surface didn't understand what they were supposed to do anymore because all the instructions they'd been given before these coal miners became Christians were all swear words. Get that coal up that... And so when the coal miners stopped swearing at the donkeys and were nicer to the donkeys... The donkey's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. And coal production went down. But not only that, uh, football crowds went down. Um, Police were laid off from work because there wasn't as much crime. The football crowds weren't going to the football because they they just, you know, still like football. But church was way more exciting than going to the football. So it's amazing when you see a revival sweep through an area, just how it can change a society. And we I asked you that question before that... um Christianity was under trial after the the age of, in within the age of reason mm. and also to the science. But it, it seems that where we're also trying to get to is that um, even when Christianity does come into trial, uh, in in almost like an opposite reaction that is is a revival in terms of what we're talking about with the Great Reaction. That's Awakening. a really good point because if you look at Jonathan Edwards, he would say it's not just it's not just a strategy. Now the Methodists had a method, and they were famous for the fact that they had a method of how they were growing their ministry and their movement but at its core both the methodists and the uh, people like wesley and whitfield and jonathan edwards saw this as a work of the spirit so one of the things that edward really really brings in is this is not happening because of human beings coming up with a great strategy this is actually a work of the spirit and so when preaching takes place the christian preacher believes that the holy spirit is working as much on the ears of the hearer as helping the preacher to preach the message uh, obviously, the Holy Spirit has given us the word of God that he's inspired. Then he um, calls us to partner with him as he um, gets that message out. But what's really fascinating is Edwards says that the beginning of a revival is not just the willingness of a preacher to go out and preach the gospel, but it's actually repentance. So coming back to Jesus's word in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the kingdom of heaven has come, repent and believe the good news. So there's this big focus in the revivalists of we as Christians need to really repent and humble ourselves before God and pray and ask God to pour out his spirit. And so there's this sense that it was actually God actually changing the society, which is fascinating because this is in the age of reason where people were questioning the authority of of faith versus the authority of science. And while those debates are raging within denominations where liberals within those denominations are really 
pushing back on the authority of God's word, you've got these revivals taking place from people who think they're actually just partnering with Jesus as he's continuing to build his church. So I find that quite ironic that in the age of reason, it's not a reasonable Christianity that wins over people. It's not a reasoned apologetic of why the Bible is true that wins over people. It's this, this faith in God to work and just an obedience to use what he's given us to do what he's asked us to do, which is to preach the gospel. And so I think that's a really big lesson for us in our generation, that we shouldn't get too caught up with apologetics. There's there's a place for it. But um, helping people to say, answer their questions that they might have about why should I take on the authority of the Bible, uh, we can help them to understand how reasonable that is. But at the end of the day, it's a work of the Spirit. And I think what I get excited about from this episode is we need to also remember that we need a work of the Spirit in our generation, not just we need to get a clever evangelistic strategy and get better trained as an evangelist or be more willing to be an evangelist to see people come to know Jesus. It's for us to repent of our sin and to be humble before God and and, and actually partner with him in what he's doing in this world, I mm. think is a really exciting way to see evangelism, which these early revivalists had a very strong clarity mm. around. I don't know what you think, Tim, but that's... Yeah, do you think we miss... I was just going to ask Tim the question. Yeah, do you think yeah. we miss the role of the Spirit when we're trying to... We, maybe we these days we focus on the human strategy and we're perhaps missing the role of the Spirit can have on in revivals, as we've talked about? Yeah, it's always, a, it's, it's always trying to work out how to get that... Right, isn't it? Like because it is the Spirit's work. We believe as evangelicals, as reformed evangelicals, that it is the Spirit that does the work. It's um, Paul talks in two Corinthians. It's the Spirit that um, un- unblinkers the eyes. You know, takes away uh, the blindness and is able to make people alive and to salvation. And so that's really, really central. And so the preaching of the word clearly, um, prayer um, that God, we will be praying and. and calling upon God to be acting. And that's really, really key. And I think you're right. We do often minimise that um, and try to maximise what is the clever strategy that we might use? What's the latest resource that we could use? What's the latest way of engaging these particular people? Let's work on um, that idea. And um, it's almost as if revival is a system that we can understand and that we can uh, control. And so if we have know what the right inputs are, um, then we can plug those inputs into our church, into our ministry, and we should see this particular outcome. Um, but God is not a, a system to be understood. You know, um, revival is not a system to be understood. We can learn from past revivals. We can be winsome and sharp and think about how we can um, carefully remove the barriers uh, I think that's what apologetics does at its best is that it removes blockages to faith um, and that allows people to see the beauty of Jesus. Uh, but it is the preaching of the word and it's, it's prayer um, and partnering with God in that which is actually going to be doing the work of revival. And so think putting each one in its place is going to be a really key part of what we do and how to do it well. And I think at its core, evangelism is a spiritual endeavour. Mm-hmm. And that's what these revivalists understood, that all they were doing was sharing the message of the gospel and that when people heard the gospel, it would convict them that Jesus actually did come and he died and he rose again and that he did that for sinners so that we could actually understand that he took the punishment for us that we deserve for our sin and he took it upon himself. And that is a spiritual message in the age of reason. And what's great about these early revivalists is 
they are just continuing to preach this spiritual message in the age of reason. And I think that's one of the themes that we're going to start seeing coming out, that when Christians get too caught up trying to engage with reason, uh, sometimes they lose the focus on that spiritual activity. And it's fundamentally just uh, um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit to con- convict someone of their sin and to see them come to Christ. Um, there's a, a great story of a, a revivalist preacher in Wales, again in Wales. <laughs> He's having... Uh, a congregation has come to hear him speak and there's this moment where he's he's uh, giving one of these traditional hellfire and brimstone sermons that people um, these days would sort of say is a bit old-fashioned but he gets up and he says basically you are so in danger right now if you don't have christ if you have not accepted christ then you're going to have to pay for your sin and and you are, you, you are in a fragile situation. You really need to be aware that your life is a short life. And he used this analogy where he said, you know, you're standing on the stone of this, this ch- church floor, which, which seems really stable, but it might as well be a rotting grass mat under your feet. And below that floor is the fire of hell. And one day this floor is just going to fall beneath you and you're going to fall into that eternal reality. If you don't have Christ, you will be, you'll be um, uh, in hell forever. And apparently during this sermon, people were so convicted that there were men and women holding onto the pillars of the church in case the floor would come away from them as the man was speaking, as the preacher was speaking. And, and they, were, they were saying, we want to become Christians. We want to become Christians. And then he paused at the end of his sermon, according to the story, and said, well, I don't want you just to respond to this story out of pure emotionalism. I want you to go home and pray about it and think about it. And tomorrow I'm going to come back here. And if you still want to become a Christian tomorrow, then come back and accept Christ tomorrow. And apparently there was... All night in the village there was wailing and crying because people were scared that Jesus would return before they had a chance to become Christians the next morning. And apparently all the dogs were howling in the town because there was so much crying and wailing. And the next morning the church was full and those people repenting and became Christians. But that was, you know, modern sensibilities might, you know, we might look on that as a bit um, naive and a bit medieval even like Luther thinking that God's throwing lightning bolts at him. But there was a spirituality amongst that people that they in that moment that they realised that their eternal salvation was at stake. And I think that's what's really interesting about these preachers. They they got back to the real basics of Christianity that it's really important that you trust in Jesus. He is the only way you can be safe in eternity. And they were able to communicate that clearly to the people of their generation. So I think it's beholden on us to continue to uh, preach the gospel and not be ashamed of the fact that it's spiritual and it's hard for us because if anything because of the age of reason and postmodernism, after that people have become less and less spiritual in our generation and we talked a couple of episodes ago about that catholic study that came out in 2008 called the spirit of gen y which looked at the spirituality of millennials and it found that um, each generation since the 60s is becoming less and less spiritual not just less and less into uh, the church but actually less and less likely to even believe in a spiritual reality so that um, the baby boomers in in many ways left the church in great numbers generation x my generation also carried on that trajectory but millennials gen y's like you guys actually became less and less spiritual and that report predicted that that would be ongoing that gen z and onwards would become less and less spiritual i think that's where we're at i think we are preaching a spiritual message to a people who are less open to the reality of spirituality but we should still be confident in the message that 
that the Holy Spirit will convict people's hearts. And so that's why I think this series is really good. I'd be really interested to hear what some of our listeners and viewers think about that because I think, it's like I said, it's worthwhile to engage with those barriers that Tim was saying and how to take away uh, misconceptions from people through conversation that might help them to reconsider Christ. But at the end of the day, it's if, if we're telling people about Jesus and and the Holy Spirit is convicting people's hearts, that's how people will be saved in eternity. So the revivalist preachers have a beautiful uh, witness to us over all these centuries, reminding us of the spiritual um, aspect to to our message. Yeah. And perhaps that was also what was missing around the time of Christendom or the end of Christendom as well. It's just that, that that's what led to people not taking that personal responsibility of faith. Well, I, th- I think they were spiritual in the way they saw it, but they, they actually were... Um, there's a, there a real collectivism around we are, we are Christian because we are English or we are Christian because we are French and mm. we are Protestant because we're Dutch or we are Catholic because we're Belgium. Whereas what's happening here now in this Great Awakenings and the revivals is there's this volunteerism and this denominationalism which is coming in because churches are actually calling on people to listen to their message and decide for themselves to join their church rather than the state telling people to join a church. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've been going for quite a while. Uh, do you want to move on to the 1800s or should we hold off for the well, next Well, I think that's episode? a good place to end and, yep. ne- and pick it up next time. Yeah, yeah I think so. No, totally. So thank you very much, guys, for your time and your knowledge because, again, I'm really enjoying these historical uh, <laughs> perspectives because I'm learning a lot from this. And thank you very much. And thanks to very much to uh, you guys who are listening or watching us on YouTube. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you like, you would, we'd love you to subscribe to the podcast or on YouTube. Um, and you can also join the conversation by emailing me at joel at shockersorber.com.au. You can jump on the Discord channel where we're happy to talk about anything that we've raised uh, in any of the podcasts. So any questions there, you can chuck them on there as well. Um, but yeah, like and subscribe. But thanks very much for watching and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you very much. And as always, we like to finish with a one way. One way. One way.